I'll begin with a little intro, and I'll read our text, and we'll get right into it. So everyone should kind of have a, a handout, which is just sort of a map of where we're going today. Um, before I get, get all the way into this, I really have to thank my wonderful wife for being an ear this week and giving me the opportunity to take the scraps of time that I have to uh, prepare this message. Uh, I'm very thankful for the work that goes into putting together a message because it's a lot of work. Um, I have to thank John for encouraging me to get up here because I probably, to be honest with you, wouldn't be up here if it was not for him. (laughs) Just keeping it real. And our uh, pastors and elders for um, also trusting me uh, with this time. So um, I actually considered selecting a different text But after reflecting on it, I decided to maintain our theme of going through the Psalms for this evening service. So if I'm going to go through the Psalms, you might ask what I did. Started reading Psalms. (laughs) So as I'm going through the Psalms, I came across Psalm 14. And interestingly, Pastor Nick recently preached on Romans 3. Nairobi uh, preached on, I believe it was 1 John. 1 John chapter 2 yesterday, all of us are actually going to be covering a similar uh, topic or doctrine, if you will. And I think it's fascinating to see how all of us are preaching on a related topic, but none of us planned it. (laughs) You know, I chose this psalm uh, a little while back. Um, Pastor Nick has been walking us through Romans, and I had no discussions. I haven't even heard his message yet on 1 John 2. So um, it's interesting that we're kind of in the same doctrine, none of us planned it, but yet in God's good providence, he saw it fit for this body to uh, be taught on this doctrine. So uh, without further ado, we'll read Psalm 14, starting at verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, That salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we are thankful for your word, thankful for this time together. God, I pray that you would grant your grace and your mercy as we go through this text, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would purify our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would penetrate the hearts of those who do not know you, Lord, that they would be heirs of your grace. Lord, help us to faithfully understand your word and your scriptures. Lord, that we would get it right, that we would get it out. Father, we thank you for this time together. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So this psalm, this is a psalm of lament in which the psalmist expresses a profound sense of distress. And calls upon God to intervene. All while imparting wisdom about the nature of the wicked. In this chapter, we will witness the psalmist's deep contemplation as he reflects on the character and moral state of the fool. 
as well as the ultimate destiny that awaits the fool in contrast to that of the righteous. Verse 1. The fool says in his heart there is no God. The subject introduced at the beginning of the psalm is identified as the fool. While it may initially appear that we are referring to an individual in singular terms, we are in fact discussing all of humanity. Now we'll delve into this in greater detail as we progress through the text. The term fool in this context does not pertain solely to intellectual capacity, but rather to a moral and spiritual condition. The fool rejects God and his divine law, which serves as a reflection of his character and the ethical standards of the covenant established for all people. All people, all people, have a duty to obey the law of God. Christian, it is not lawful for you to steal. And the same goes for your pagan neighbor. All people, all people, Christian, non-Christian, have a duty to obey the law of God. It's crucial to note this up front as we continue, for it underscores the inherent nature of the fool who will inevitably manifest foolish practices. Just as a bird possesses a natural inclination to fly, a fool is naturally inclined to act a fool, right? A fool going to act a fool. That's from the uh, Urban Apologetics uh, Dictionary. (laughs) Fool going to act a fool. The psalmist proceeds to convey what the fool utters in his heart, namely, there is no God. In this context, the heart refers to the very essence of a person, encompassing their will and spiritual nature. It is the source of one's inner inner convictions and the foundation from which their worldview emanates. While some may argue that the heart is synonymous with the mind, I believe it extends beyond that. The heart encompasses not only the intellectual faculties and physical aspects of an individual, but also their spiritual nature. Interestingly, the psalm is remarkably explicit and leaves no room for ambiguity. It does not suggest that those who claim in their hearts that there is no God are confused, lack understanding, or information. The statement is an unequivocally clear declarative statement. The fool says at his very core, there is no God. In verse 1, the psalmist goes on to describe these people by the pronoun they, which makes it clear we're not speaking of an individual. The psalmist goes on to describe the immoral nature of the fool. They are described as corrupt, doers of abominable deeds, and that there is none who does good. The psalmist goes from saying fool to they statements and then ultimately concludes this first verse by stating there is none who does good. So, if there is none who does good, we are talking about an absolute. And again, this is plural language. This is plural language used here to indicate that we are talking about all of humanity. Plural language is used here to indicate that we're talking about all of humanity. Verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. Now this phrase employs rhetoric to emphasize a point rather than to inquire about an unknown answer. It serves as a rhetorical statement designed to heighten the significance of the matter at hand. I'll give you an example. If I, if I were to state that I looked inside the most exquisite steakhouse, wondering how many vegans would be willing to indulge in the finest steak with me, 
The answer would be undoubtedly zero, right? Vegans abstain from consuming animal products, and steakhouses serve beef. Now, if you have trouble with this reference, talk to Mr. Williams back there. I'm sure he comprehends this very well. The psalmist employs this rhetorical statement to highlight an absurdity, specifically the inherent moral corruption of all humanity. It's important to understand that God is not actually searching or seeking as, if, uh, he, al- as, as he already possesses complete knowledge of mankind's depravity. God is omniscient, meaning he knows all things. He also decrees all things and governs all things. As R.C. Sproul famously stated, there is not one maverick molecule in the entire universe. This affirms the sovereignty and comprehensive understanding of God over every aspect of existence. Verse 3. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. They have all turned aside and together have become corrupt. Now, we can further affirm that verse 2 was a rhetorical statement because the psalmist, the psalmist promptly follows his rhetorical statement here with an answer, emphasizing his initial point and aiming to persuade his audience. The term all here is to be taken literally. Once again, the psalmist underscores the condition of all humanity without exception. They have turned aside. They, referring to the fool, want nothing to do with God. Together they have become corrupt. Every individual in humanity, by virtue of their connection to Adam, shares in this state of corruption. Adam, as the representative of all humanity, fell, and as his descendants, we inherit a corrupt nature. When something is inherently corrupt, it cannot possess inherent righteousness. Illustration. When I was growing up, we had two apple trees in our backyard. One of my responsibilities was to clean up all the fallen apples. Now, while the apples were still attached to the tree, they displayed a beautiful color, a lovely texture, firmness, and even had a refreshing scent. However, once an apple fell from the tree, the ones that I had to clean up, they became rotten and repulsive. They lost their appealing color, texture, they turned mushy and emitted a terrible odor. This illustration helps us grasp the point the psalmist is making. Humanity is likened to those unpleasant detached apples. None of the apples I picked up from the ground were none of the apples I picked up from the ground which were detached from the tree resembled the thriving apples that were still on the tree. There is none who does good, not even one. We observe that this phrase repeats what we heard earlier in verse 1. However, if you pay attention, you'll notice that there are three additional words in verse 3 that were not present in verse 1. Not even one. The psalmist uses these three words to emphasize the comprehensive and absolute nature of humanity's corruption. It crushes the notion that there might be exceptions, such as a loved one known for their kindness or noble historical figures. The psalmist dispels such ideas by stating emphatically, none, not even one. By reiterating the statement in both verse 1 and 3, that there is none who does good, the psalmist underscores a crucial point in this chapter and aims to make it abundantly clear. The repetition 
of this phrase serves to invoke an emotional impact, prompting us to take this message very seriously. Now, I want us to exercise caution and remember that we are discussing the moral bankruptcy of humanity, emphasizing that in an absolute sense, man is incapable of doing good, lacking the desire to acknowledge and honor the Lord. This points to the doctrine of total depravity, which highlights man's complete spiritual inability. It's important to note that total depravity does not imply that man is as bad as he could possibly be, for he has the potential to be even worse if not for the restraining grace of God. So it's important as we look at this doctrine, man is not as bad as he could potentially be. Men can indeed perform acts that are relatively good, such as saving a life, choosing marriage over adultery, protesting against abortion, displaying kindness, opening a hospital, or becoming a member of a church. These actions are commendable and praiseworthy. However, it is crucial to understand that no human effort or good work can justify a person before God. Despite the positive nature of these deeds, they do not have the power to make a person right with God. Additionally, it is important to recognize that even these seemingly good actions can be temporary in nature, driven by various motives that do not necessarily involve glorifying God as they should. In fact, pastors regularly practice church discipline for individuals who voluntarily sign up for covenant membership, taking an oath to support said chosen church, and then suddenly disappear, sometimes within weeks, and without credible reasons. This situation may reveal apostasy in some cases, while others may simply be disingenuous or ignorant of doctrine, not fully understanding the commitment that they've made. The initial excitement and romantic phase fades away, and it becomes time for individuals to step up, invest in the church community, and contribute their time and gifts. However, this requires sacrifice and effort, shifting the focus away from themselves and toward Christ and his bride, towards the church. Rather than honoring their commitment and making a genuine effort to uphold the oath that they took publicly when voted in as a member, these individuals often experience buyer's remorse. They seek a more comfortable place, a church that offers greater entertainment value, or they sporadically visit different churches or refuse to attend church altogether. While this is not always the case, let's be honest, it occurs quite frequently. Even the, pursuit, even the pursuit of church membership will sometimes reveal the deceitful and desperately wicked nature of the human heart. Who can know it but the Lord? Now, if you are engaged in good works, praise the Lord. Continue to do them. However, it is essential to understand that these works, as well as any other work, is not sufficient to save you, transform your nature, or make you righteous before God. The good works performed by Christians serve as evidence that Christ has already worked in them. Now, as a Christian, you likely already know these principles because these are elementary aspects of the faith. Verse 4, Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who devour my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the name of the Lord? The phrase, have they no knowledge, not only suggests a lack of understanding, but also conveys an obliviousness. They're oblivious. This lack of awareness often arises due to the natural inclinations of the fool, 
A person who naturally exhibits abrasiveness, uses vulgar and perverted language, may be numb to the fact that they engage in such behavior. Similarly, an individual who neglects reading the Bible, prayer, attending church on Sunday, may not feel dis- discomfort at all because it aligns with who they actually are. Once I went to speak at a place, and I brought my children along so they could hear me evangelize and share my faith, it was a rather unsettling place. This place was known as public school. <laughs> now my children were taken back. They couldn't believe the wicked behavior they witnessed, openly displayed by the students or disciples, whichever term you prefer. It made my kids extremely uncomfortable. However, however, the students attending the school of Molech, acting foolishly, wore smiles on their faces, completely unfazed. It's just another day at the office for them. All the evildoers who devour my people as they eat bread. Here the psalmist employs a simile to clarify his statement. It's important to note that this phrase is not to be understood literally, as the psalmist is not referring to the fool engaging in cannibalism. Right? We know we're not talking about cannibalism here. This is a simile. Instead... This simile is used to provide a relatable comparison that helps the audience understand the destructive nature of the fool. Just as eating bread is natural and an effortless action, the fool's capacity for destruction comes naturally to them. The act of eating, particularly consuming bread, is often done without much thought or difficulty, and many of you who love bread know what I'm talking about. You can relate to this experience. It's crucial to recognize that the fool is described as an evildoer, while the people of God are the ones being metaphorically consumed by the evildoer in the simile. In different translations, the phrase may be rendered as the workers of iniquity, for those of you who have the KJV, or the workers of injustice, for those of you who have the NASB. This conveys the idea that the fool consistently engages in sinful behavior. What is sin? catechism question, right? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. There are various enemies, going back to our context here, there's various enemies addressed in the book of Psalms, including the Philistines, Edomites, Moabites, Ammonites, Assyrians, Babylonians, and likely there are others that I'm leaving out. These nations were frequently involved in conflicts and sought to conquer Israel. Now, It's important to recognize that the psalmist is referring to humanity as a whole rather than singling out a specific individual or enemy. This text extends beyond Israel's adversaries and encompasses all of humanity. The text extends beyond Israel's adversaries and encompasses all of humanity. For those who were present um, last Sunday morning, it's particularly evident that this holds true. Not this Sunday, but the previous. Pastor Nick read Romans 3, chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. We clearly see the Apostle Paul quotes Psalm 14 to present his argument regarding the universal sinfulness and depravity of all of humanity. It's also worth, i got to briefly note this as well. Don't want to get us too far off track, but it's also worth briefly noting here that Paul's usage of Psalm 14 serves to demonstrate the interconnectedness and consistency throughout Scripture, highlighting the continuity between the Old and New Testament, the whole of Scripture. 
the fool existed not only during David's and Paul's time, but also in our present time. The fool encompasses more than just individuals like your Bart Earnham, Richard Dawkins, radical pagans out there who are out burning Bibles. It includes those who claim and have no desire to attend church, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Muslims, Catholics who adhere to the councils of Trent and believe their works are necessary or a contributing factor to their righteousness before God, and those who believe all religions lead to the same God, dismissing the importance of doctrines that are clearly non-negotiable. Yes, there are doctrines that are non-negotiable. The list of fools and those who display false piety towards God can continue. We can go on and on. A false God is no God at all. All these individuals we just listed deny the God of the Bible. The one and only true God and the psalmist clearly here addresses them as fools. All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread. The fool persistently and routinely breaks God's law, much like one who consumes bread. And do not call upon the Lord. The fool adamantly refuses to call upon the Lord, refusing to place faith in God. This refusal stems from the fool's connection to Adam, as we noted earlier, which lies at the root of humanity's problem. Regarding the bondage of fallen man's will, John Calvin states, man won't because he can't. Man will not come to God because he cannot come to God. It's crucial to highlight this fact from an apologetic standpoint, I'll add, because what the psalmist conveys is that the fool's primary issue is not mere an objection to wisdom or sound logical argumentation. Rather, the fool's objection is directed towards God. A point made evident here in verse 4 and also in verse 1. Verse 5. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. Here, the psalmist undergoes a shift, directing our attention towards the impending fate of the fool's falling. This statement carries a weighty message that should do two things for us. A. Instill fear and trembling in the fool and B, provide encouragement to the people of God. There they are in great terror. This highlights the judgment of God that befalls the wicked. The psalmist clarifies the reason behind this judgment, for God is with the generation of the righteous. The fool finds themselves in a state of great terror, their destiny defined by this fear, while God's presence resides among his people, specifically the remnant of Israel. The term generation of the righteous refers to the faithful and righteous ones within Israel, those who are justified by faith in Christ. It's important to note that although Christ had not yet come at the time of the writing of this psalm, that all individuals throughout the Bible, throughout the whole Bible, right, Old and New Testament, are saved by faith, by Christ's atonement and His righteousness being imputed to them. Moreover, this passage, this passage depicts another significant aspect, the existence of two covenants, two covenant heads, two races of people. There are those who belong to Adam, the fool, and those who belong to Christ, the righteous. Verse 6, you would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Now, 
Interesting here. Not many commentators provide extensive commentary on verses 4 and 5, at least the ones that I looked at. However, I perceive this verse as a continuation of the transition initiated in verse 5, addressing the behavior of the wicked towards the people of God. The psalmist reflects on the reality that amidst oppression, the Lord serves as a refuge for his people. There are occasions when it may appear that evil is prevailing, and we may be tempted to question whether the wicked are escaping justice, or if God has forgotten us, which can sometimes lead our faith to waver. Yet, as we read here in verse 4 and 5, the psalmist reassures us and instills unwavering confidence that God is fully present with his people. God is aware of the circumstances, and the fool and the wicked are not evading accountability. God's dealings with the wicked and his people are not obscure or ambiguous. Rather, they are governed by a way of covenant. Throughout every moment of history, every moment of the present, and every moment of the future, God has clear, established intent behind all of it. Quoting from the Reformation Study Bible, God can overrule the wicked plans of evildoers for the good of the afflicted, this principle is stated by Joseph in Genesis 50:20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And as applied to the crucifixion, Acts 2:22 through 24, men of Israel, hear these words: Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Verse 7. We're getting there. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Lastly, the psalmist concludes this chapter with a passionate cry for the salvation of Israel to come forth from Zion. By pleading for deliverance to come out of Zion, the psalmist references the location of the temple where the Holy of Holies resided. The temple situated on Mount Zion was the dwelling place of God's presence. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. The psalmist expresses confident trust in God and anticipates the restoration of the people of God, rejoicing in their deliverance. It's noteworthy that there is no hesitation or doubt expressed. The psalmist firmly places circumstances, the fool, and the people of God into their proper perspective, recognizing that great terror awaits the fool. So, if you find yourself in the position of the fool, if you find yourself in the position of the fool, I plead with you to repent and put your faith in Christ. For the one who comes to him in faith and with a contrite heart will no longer be known by God as the fool, but his child, for he is faithful to forgive. And if you were once a fool, but by the grace of God are redeemed if you are the redeemed here today and trusting in Christ, heed the words of the psalmist, Christian. Do not lose heart, for God is with his people. Amen.
Amen. Let us pray. Father, indeed, Lord, we thank you so much for the psalm, Lord God, for all of us. All of us here were fools, Lord. All of us were lost, Lord, and it was routine. It was natural to us, Lord. We persisted in our wickedness, but by your effectual call, Lord, you woke us from our sleep. You called us out of darkness, Lord, and we now can walk in light. We are no longer fools, but your children, Lord God. Father, I would rejoice in that, Lord, that you are mighty to save, Lord. I pray for anyone, anyone that we know, Lord God, that is still in the state of fool, the person that is oblivious to their sin, Lord God. I pray that you would make it apparent to them, Lord, that you would grant them a heart of flesh, that you would indeed call them out of darkness, Lord. I pray for those, Lord, who are struggling, who are going through circumstance, Lord, for those who look outside or turn on the TV, Lord, and think evil is prevailing, Lord. We're reminded in this psalm, God, that it is not Lord, that terror awaits these people, Lord, and that you are with the righteous God. So, Lord, I pray that we would not lose heart, Lord, that we would continue to march on and be salt and light in this community, for you are with us, Lord. We thank you and praise you for this mighty truth and this confidence that we have in Christ. Amen and amen. Amen. All right. I was talking rather quickly, apparently. I'm watching the clock. Probably my nerves. I'm going to be up here more to slow down. <laughs> um, we'll open it up for Q&A. That's all I got. Yeah, actually, I better pull this back out. I might have to reference my notes. Put that away too quickly. Way too comfortable. We got plenty of time. That was only like, what, 30 minutes? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It doesn't apply to our nature as fools. And that's really the difference from the Christian, right, is we're going to do sinful acts. We're going to do foolish acts. However, we're not comfortable and routinely and persistently engaging in them. Right. Which is why I kind of gave the illustration of when we went and spoke at the school and shared our faith. Like my kids are looking around at some of these children who are just using foul language, listening to crazy music. And it is just their natural environment. Right. It's just another day at the office. And it shouldn't be the case for the Christian, right? The Christian is not uh, impervious to sin. However, when the Christian sins, there's repentance that takes place. There should be sanctification throughout their lives, and their sins are forgiven. And those things are evidence of their condition and their nature, right? Um, the, the average Christian should not be, uh, or not even the average, the Christian should not be comfortable in perversion, using perverse language, talking about anything, watch, watching anything, right? That's, that's not the life or the, the position of the Christian by nature. 
So you're absolutely right, yeah. Christians should not be identified as fools. The fools have a particular nature about them. There's a difference between being comfortable and falling into Right. And I didn't, you know, I kind of debated whether or not, I'm just being candid here, if I was going to put in some of the portions into the message that I was, and I wish I would have slowed down a little bit on some of them, but we were even talking this morning about these false religions, right? These people are adamant about denying the God of the Bible. And I know some people like to go soft on those topics, but there are gospel issues that are non-negotiable, right? The gospel is not negotiable. I mean, Peter made that clear in the book of Galatians, um, or excuse me, Paul made it clear when addressing Peter in the book of Galatians, right, about adding his Judaism to the gospel. Um, So when it comes to naming some of those false religions, people are persistent and adamant about denying the Christ of the scriptures, right? It's a non-negotiable issue. That's just evidence of foolishness, in my opinion, right, that they're persistent and routinely comfortable denying the Jesus of the Bible and the gospel. scary we even know people that are adding those Galatian type works the gospel as it speaks. So. Right. In verse 4, students talks about how um, they eat up my people as they eat up bread and do not call upon the Lord. Do you think there's a sense there in what she's just pointing out that one of the foolishnesses of the fool is that they don't recognize that everything they have comes from the Lord? It's like they're, they're happy to take the resources which are from the hand of the Lord, but they're not even going to stop and acknowledge that it comes from God. Part of our foolishness is, I would argue here, being pointed and highlighted is that we don't give glory to the Lord like we should. Absolutely. And we, we go on thinking that we provide for ourselves. Yeah, I think the fool absolutely does that, right? Takes these graces for, for granted. I mean, the fool lives an inconsistent life. Um, just the fact that he upholds certain ethical and moral privileges and recognizes things that come but refuses to acknowledge God, right? The fool says in his heart there is no God, so I think that's completely applicable uh, as well. So that's an excellent point. Brother? This might be more for for everybody, but um, to what degree might a fool be able to get something out of reading Psalm 14? Uh, I would say, I guess, to the degree that God gives him the grace to understand it. (laughs) Um, You know, faith comes by hearing, by hearing the word of God, right? So um, our children, our children are born in Adam, but they're here, they're hearing the word of the Lord. And my prayer is that the faithful and routinely discipling of our children, that God would use those means to save them. So I would encourage the fool or any fool out there to continue to read scripture, to labor, labor and tarry with scripture. Um, because that is one of the means that God uses them to transform them from fool to friend. So, um, I don't know. I guess that's the best I can answer that question. I don't know if you had something else in mind. Sort of you can like answer a, it. Uh, there would have to be some sort of like supernatural intervention. I mean, you know, we, we read this and we get it. Mm-hmm. Um, we might have read it. Spiritual things are discerned by people that are spiritually 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think that goes to Calvin's point here in this message, right? That man won't be because he can't, right? Complete spiritual inability. Uh, we talked earlier today about the law being as a mirror, right? Um, it's kind of like walking around with stuff in your teeth and all over your face. I can put a mirror in front of you, but if you keep refusing to look in it, you're never going to see it. But the moment you look in the, the mirror, you see all the stuff in your teeth and your face and like, oh, I have a problem. I need to address this, right? That's like the picture of regeneration, you know? Uh, once you look in the mirror and see who you are in light of the law and you see this holy God, you're like, oh, wow, problem, right? But until you see a mirror, you walk around thinking you're just fine. You don't even know it's in your teeth. You don't even know it's there, right? You think it's all good. Such is the nature of the fool, right? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, the psalmist here, I really grew to appreciate this psalm because obviously as you're studying, your, your heart's getting ministered to as well that there are times where our faith is going to waver because it seems like the wicked may be prevailing or it may not seem like, God, are you there because of this? But God is absolutely there and he's absolutely faithful to his covenant and he's working out his divine purposes in and through that, right? Um, I think in that we can obviously self-examine, see if we're the problem. But also remember that our duty is to be faithful to his covenant. He's working on such a grand scale in ways that we couldn't possibly comprehend. And in that, we have great trust. As if we're in him and we're his children, he's our refuge. So the Christian ought not to lose heart in difficult circumstances. Well, yeah, and when you said that, it just it made me think of how much God's mercy and grace should be motivating factor for everything that we do. Because we really, yeah, I don't think we can even grasp in this life how merciful God, how gracious God is to us. Amen. You know, I was just having this discussion today with a brother. I mean, we really look and God showed us our days. We would probably be shocked at how much more sin we're doing than things we think we got it together. <laughs> People we think we do, we're doing good, there's usually sin somewhere in the midst, right? Amen. So, you know, that should springboard us into, you know, like, you know, the old Right. Make us truly, truly live, you know, out of our faith. Absolutely. All right. Any other questions or comments? Oh, brother? I was just going to say that I've used that passage before to describe total depravity throughout the very beginning. I think that's clear right there. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah, Romans 3. That was part of the, the interesting factor when we were studying this, like the timing of it all. No intent. I didn't powwow with Pastor Nick or with Nairobi, but yeah, the Apostle Paul uses this text in Romans 3. So, well, should I turn it back over to you, Pastor Nick? Yes, absolutely. Let us, let us pray to close out and we will be dismissed. Father, indeed, Lord, we thank you for our time together, Lord God, and um, we are overwhelmed. I am overwhelmed by your grace, Lord, recognizing that you, Lord, allow me to feel the burden of my sin, Lord, that you granted me a new heart that I would be able to receive the gift of faith and put my trust in you, Lord God. I was lost, Lord. And Father, as I read this text, Lord, I'm humbled. Uh, tremendously humbled, Lord God, and I pray that it would help me to be um, compassionate, Lord, and persistent, Lord, in declaring your truth, Lord, and that would give me confidence knowing, God, that you are with us, Lord, leading us on to victory, Lord, that you've given us great confidence. I pray that each person here that is trusting in you would hold that truth throughout this week, Lord, as they... Um, encounter adversary, adversity, Lord God, that you would strengthen them, Lord, and for the person, Lord God, for our children, Lord, for anyone who may be outside of your covenant of grace, Lord, I pray that you would grant them ears to hear this message, Lord, that they would come to you with a contrite and broken heart, Lord, seeking repentance, Lord, and you would grant them the grace that leads to life. And I pray all this in your mighty name. Amen.